right, Journey Kids, free to go. Well, good morning again. All right, good. All right, we're we're getting there. Slow start. Okay. Glad you are here. Uh, we are going to be in Colossians chapter four. There's a couple passages we're going to look at, but that's where we're going to spend probably the most amount of time in is Colossians chapter four. If you want to turn there and and uh, be hanging out there until we get there. You know, last week we looked at baptism. We looked at how this is a public proclamation of who your Lord is. It is you proclaiming publicly where your allegiance lies. Um, and uh, it's kind of like, I see a couple of them in the room today. It's kind of like what, what sports team you would wear uh, on yourself. You are making a public proclamation of where your fandom lies or your allegiance lies. Uh, and um, now I'm from the western side of the state, so don't hold it against me that I am a Steelers fan. By you know, so that that is I, I, that's how people Philadelphia have given me a pass. By the way, when I tell them I'm from Pittsburgh area, they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> but uh, I, I was wearing uh, Steelers hoodie yesterday, and and you know, you're in public, and people just like they they just look at you strange here. Whenever you're wearing Steelers stuff, they just look, I feel judged, right? Andrew knows what I'm talking about. When he wears his Mets regalia, like we go out in public and people always, anytime I go out to lunch with Andrew and he's wearing Mets stuff, someone always gives him a hard time. And I usually stand up for him. I say, I don't know this guy. (laughs) No, I say he's he's lit. He's from New York. It's okay. That's, That's where he's from. And they're like, eh. So, like, w- baptism is a really much larger and more intricate, more important picture of that, that pithy example I gave. But it, it is you making a public proclamation of where your allegiance lies. Your allegiance lies with Jesus, and you're not ashamed for people to know that. And so baptism isn't this mystical thing. It is a beautiful symbol. That's what we looked at. We want to continue to orient ourselves around the things that the church at its arguably healthiest were devoted to. That's what we're doing. We're in this series calling, Now What? We're bottom line people. That's just how we're wired. We just want to know the so what, right? We hear it. We hear the information. Now, what does that mean? And, and that's why we're looking at Acts 2, because I think it's healthy for us to reorient ourselves around the church, again, at its arguably healthiest. If we're going to be a healthy church, which is a goal we have, this is what we want to do, so we want to be, it is wise for us to reorient around the historical part of our movement called the church and see, okay, when did, that, when did this entity function at its absolute highest capacity? When were they putting out their best? And when we do that with the church, we have to go the whole way back to the very, very beginning. And that's Acts 2. So Acts 2.42 tells us something of that church, tells us something of our roots, says this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
So every week we've tried to slice that down a little bit and see what were the followers of Jesus at this point in history, what were they devoted to? Because I, I, would, I would venture, I'm not a scientist, I've not done extensive research, I'm just going off my own rhythms. My behavior, my behavioral patterns are dictated, not even super consciously, but are dictated by what I'm devoted to. My movement, my behavior, my priorities, they all bleed out of what I'm devoted to. And I don't know if you're like me at all. Maybe you are, maybe you are not. But what I can tell you is that when I dissect my day down in that filter, if by looking at the dissected parts of my day under a microscope, and if, if the end point of that research study is to say, what was Adam devoted to today? We're going to make that conclusion based on how he spent his time. Some days I would not want those results to be made public because what I'm devoted to might not have a whole lot to do with Jesus on any given day. We asked the question a few weeks back that if your life was the subject of a documentary series, like a nature documentary, you know, animals can't talk. And so the researchers of these studies are always making the conclusion themselves based on the behavioral patterns of the animal in which we've studied, based on what we see them do on a regular basis, based on where we see them go, based on how we see them interact with, with this group and this group and in this place at this time of year, we've concluded that these things are vitally important to this animal, right? We don't know. We're just making... We're making statements about this animal group in a documentary series based on what research we've seen. So if you were the subject, if I was the subject of a documentary series, just tracking your every move, night vision cameras, the whole bit, right? What would be the conclusion at the end? What would the scientists, after looking at all the data compiled, make a conclusion about what your life was really about? We would say, in the language that we're choosing to use, and in the language that's riddled through Scripture, we would say that that conclusion defines what you're devoted to. Now, the beautiful thing about the church in the book of Acts that we're, gonna, that we're looking at is that the devotion led to behavioral patterns. That's the last, the, the middle part of the section, Acts 2, 42 through 47. It tells us their behavioral patterns. It starts by telling us what they were devoted to. Then it tells us what they did. Then it tells us what happens. And then it tells us what God does. And it's a really awesome formula to follow if you're going to try to be a healthy church. So this week, we're going to look at something vital to our relationship with God. We're going to look at prayer. Now, if I were to just make a statement right now, I'm going to randomly pick three people from the crowd. I want you to stand up when I point to you, and I want you to pray out loud. How many of you feel anxious right now just because I said that? It would lead to some form of anxiety, I think, in some of you. I think some people would be like, yeah, I can do that. Uh, right here, this man here, if I said, Don, will you pray for us? He wouldn't even, I wouldn't even get us out of my mouth before he started praying. 
Now, if you feel anxious at the thought of public prayer, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm not giving you an indictment. I'm not casting shame on you. Or as the young folks say, throw in shade. That just sounded weird trying to say it. But. Stick to your notes, Adam. We'll edit that out of the recording, right? Okay. <clears throat> I'm not saying that it's wrong for you to even feel that anxiety that might come in you if I pointed the finger at you and said, I would like you to stand and pray. Some of that anxiety might, maybe you're sitting there in a scenario like that and you would be thinking like, please don't pick me, please don't pick me, please don't pick me, please don't pick me. And some of that might come from just the reality of public speaking, that standing in front of a group of people, whether you're familiar with them or not, is just not your thing. But some of that comes from us feeling like we're just not good prayers. I'm just not good at praying. What is prayer? What, what, is, what is prayer not? What if we come to think of prayer that might not really be in line with what the scriptures teach us of prayer? Because I've heard more than one person say a phrase like that back to me. Oh, I don't pray in public. I'm just not good at it. I'm just not good at praying in public. I hear you pray in public or so-and-so pray in public. I just, mine sounds stupid compared to yours. Where does that come from? Where, where did that start? Where, where, where did that shame induce? And well, I can tell you where it got started. It's where the origination point of all of those feelings come from. It's from the, the evil one in the garden that wants us to look less and less like our king and wants us to believe less and less of his promises for us. Shame and guilt are the two main tools of the devil, and he will use them a lot. And I'm not giving him any credit here, but we do have to accept the reality that he's good at it. So the early church was devoted to prayer. As a matter of fact, leading up to the moment of Pentecost, leading up to the moment that the Holy Spirit makes himself known through a strong wind and flames coming out of people's heads, which is, like I said before, just it's bizarre and hard for us to wrap our minds around it, but it happened. Before that moment, do you know what they were doing? They were praying. Jesus told them to wait. And we're all good at that, right? We're all good at waiting. To so wait until you receive power from on high. Before that, he made a promise that said, it's actually better for you if I go. He makes a promise that the helper will come. Now, there have been times, we talked about this before, there have been times where the followers of Jesus heard Jesus tell them to, wait, to watch and wait and pray, and they didn't do a great job with it. They either fell asleep or they just didn't do it. But this time they get it. In, the, in, the, in what could be, and quite possibly was, one of the most tumultuous moments in their lives, Jesus is gone. They've been told to go into the whole world and tell everyone this message, but to wait to do that until they get help. They don't really know what that means yet. 
But you man, put yourself, I think that's something we don't do enough in Scripture. We don't put ourselves in the seat of the, of the person that it's, that it's talking about. We're hearing a story that actually happened, a historical event in the life of the church where the followers of Jesus are gathered in this room because they were told to wait for the helper that would come and into their story. Somehow, Jesus made a promise. Now, Jesus had made a promise that he was going to be killed and brought back to life, and he did it. Which means when he says, wait in a room and I will deliver a helper to you, he has proven himself to be faithful to deliver on big promises, right? So now you've got people gathered in this upper room in Jerusalem and they're waiting. But put yourself in their shoes for a second. What are we waiting for? Is this some dude that's going to come to the door and be like, hello, I am the helper. You know, what is this? Is this somebody that's going to give a how-to manual? One thing I would guess, venture an educated guess to say, that they didn't expect was to be indwelled with the living Spirit of God that filled Jesus, to be speaking in language they didn't know how to speak just 30 seconds before that, and to have flames coming out of their heads. They probably didn't expect any of that, and they didn't expect any of it to come in the form of a strong wind. But they waited and they prayed. When they weren't sure how to handle the confusion in their hearts, when it was all stripped away, when they knew that there was a pretty good chance that if they were known in public to be associated with Jesus, they too could end up on a cross. What did they do? They decided to pray. Now, prayer is a big topic, and if I'm being completely transparent with you, it feels kind of daunting to address this and define it clearly in just one sermon. To be completely transparent, prayer is something that I need to make more of a, a, a priority in my life. It's not always my first response. So this could easily be a multi-week series, and I'm not saying that it won't be someday, but for today, we just want to look at prayer today. We want to look at it from the angle of devotion. What does it look like to be devoted to prayer, and what, does that re- what results come out of that? So today, my desire, my goal is to help us reorient around the early church desiring to pray and how we can be blessed by doing the same thing. So first off, uh, I want to remind us all that prayer is a big deal to God. Prayer is a big deal to God. As a matter of fact, he sets up in the Old Testament what's called intercessories. They were known as high priests. They were the ones that took the atonement in. They were the one that once a year would go in through the Holy of Holies and be in the presence of God. And we've talked about this before, but for a quick refresher, they would wear bells on the bottom of their, of their holy gowns and they would have a rope tied around their ankle and they would be free of sin before they walked through that curtain into the actual presence of God. And if they stopped moving, they would stand like this while they offered the sacrifice and the bells would keep moving. And if the people outside heard those bells stop moving, the next noise would have been a thump to the ground and they'd drag his dead body out because he walked into the presence of God with sin in his life. And he was the one to make the atonement sacrifice for all of the people once a year, the Day of Atonement. We sang about it just a few short minutes ago. We read about it in Scripture. It says that Jesus is our great high priest, that through Jesus, no more curtain, no more ceremony, through Jesus, 
we have access to God. He is our all-atoning sacrifice. Jesus becomes the high priest. There's no chance that Jesus drops dead from sin in his life. That won't happen. So now we have access to God through a holy, holy, holy Jesus. To put it crassly, Jesus looks at the Father and says, They're with me. When Jesus, when God looks at us, he sees us as he sees his very own son. And it says that Jesus, 1 Timothy tells us that there is one mediator between God and man, man, Jesus Christ. There is only one stopping point between you and God, and that is Jesus. There's only one bridge between us and God. And that's Jesus. There is no other entity that can make your prayers known to a holy God besides Jesus. Which means when we pray, Jesus hears our prayers and he takes them to the Father. And that is what he is doing day in and day out while he builds an amazing place for us, he promised. Prayer is a big deal to God. It is the communication between us and a holy God. Merriam-Webster says that prayer is a devout petition to God. Essentially, prayer is us conversing with God. It is a lifeline for us. Prayer is vital for the main thing, staying the main thing. We talk with God in prayer. He speaks to us through His Word. George Mueller says it this way. He says, in a common, it is a common temptation of Satan to make us give up the reading of the word and prayer when our enjoyment is gone. As if it were of no use to read the scriptures when we do not enjoy them. And as if it were no use to pray when we have no spirit of prayer. The truth is that in order to enjoy the word, we ought to continue to read it. And the way to obtain a spirit of prayer is to continue praying. The less we read the Word of God, the less we desire to read it. And the less we pray, the less we desire to pray. Now, you're going to see a phenomenon happen in this city over the next week. A phenomenon that annoys a lot of people in this city. You know what that phenomenon is? People reaching into their closets and dusting off that Philly shirt that they stopped wearing about 55 games ago. The people that said, this team stinks. I'm done with them. This manager's awful. Should have got rid of the whole lot. Why don't they sell the team, right? Now those same people, because of a magical playoff run, have the audacity to put on their Phillies shirts and be fans again, right? And the faithful ones are saying, I've been here the whole time. Right? It's a pithy example. But we will throw out our fandom when the entity we are rooting for is of no value to us. You win, I'm happy. You lose, you stink, I'm done. My mailman is a diehard Steelers fan, and we, between houses, he always stops at our house from outside, and we have a good five to seven minute, that's about as long as he can stop, uh, talk about the Steelers. And his question to me right away yesterday, I was wearing my Steelers hoodie with pride. 
And he said, did you write them off yet? Are you done? That was the first question. I'm like, well, you're definitely a Steelers fan. Because after that first loss, week two, it's like, these team stinks. We're done. We're done. There's a pretty good chance they're, they're, they're going to be done this year. But that's for another message. Talk to me about that afterwards. When the thing we're rooting for gives us what we want, we will continue to be excited about it. When the thing we are rooted, rooting for ceases to give us what we want, we will complain about it and we will write it off. Right? Your employer's awesome when you get a Christmas bonus. Most of the time, work just stinks, though. Do you realize we do the same thing with God? I have a deeply rooted spirit of prayer when I feel God is hearing my prayers. Oh, man, we finally got that. Or we prayed for this and it happened. God heard our prayers. And I will continue to pray. And I will open the pages of God's word and it will bring me life until it doesn't. I love how Mueller puts this. To obtain a spirit of prayer, we have to continue praying. The less we read the Word of God, the less we desire to read it. And the less we pray, the less we desire to pray. If you're a note taker, write that down. The less we read the Word of God, the less we desire to read it. And the less we pray, the less we desire to pray. If we're people who find our purpose, identity, and joy in being known and loved by God, then we will be people of His Word and people of prayer. This is not a new idea. This is where we turn to Colossians 4. I always feel bad about, I feel icky whenever I get this far into a sermon and we haven't opened the pages of God's Word yet. So part of me wants to apologize for that. Because I don't really have anything of value to tell you if it's not being derived out of the Word of God. So this whole thing of knowing God through prayer and Him making Himself known to us through His Word and through the illumination of His Word, through the power of the Holy Spirit in us, it is a great mystery, a profound one, Paul says, actually. Colossians 4, look at, look at verses 2 through 6 of Colossians 4 with me and just see if we can learn something about prayer through what Paul says here. He says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward our outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, I would say that our initial response as human beings is to pretty much in any form of instruction is to want to know what to do and how to do it. What's the bottom line here? Megan and I went camping one time. We borrowed my parents' camper and truck, and we went to a campground that offered free camping, but you had to do a 45-minute tour of their campground and go through a sales presentation. And everything in me wanted to be like, camper's not mine, truck's not mine, I make $16,000 a year. The answer is no. Thanks for showing me your campground. Where's my free camping card? 
You told me I have free camping. Why do we waste 45 minutes? But that's not how it works, is it? How many of you have ever done a, sale, a timeshare presentation? You want to go into that room and just be like, okay, no, 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 not going to happen. No, can't afford it. No, no, bad idea. Won't do it. No, no, no. Can we, that's all done. I got them all out of my system. Give me the free pots and pans and we'll be out of here. Right? We're bottom line people. That's not how it works. Because if I asked how many of you bought a timeshare, the hands might still go up. And you'd be like, yeah, we didn't want to, but they were really good salespeople, right? <laughs> we're bottom line people. We want to know how, okay, so what do, you, what, what do you want me to do? I mean, that's what this sermon series is called. Now what? Why? Because we want to know what to do. The temptation in a passage like this is to go straight to verses 5 and 6 and nod our heads and take some notes on Christian living. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. That makes sense to me. My questions are all out of the practical doing. But that's not what Paul says first, is it? When given the opportunity to close out this letter to the church in Colossia while he's sitting in prison, Paul says something very curious, and it's very easy to skirt past it. He says this. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Let's break this down a little bit. Paul is under the assumption that the church is steadfastly praying. Eric, you can just leave that up there. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Now, if you open that page, that, that passage up, I just want to real quick look at the first, the last part of chapter three and the first part of chapter four. Are you ready for this? Let's see what Paul is saying. What's he talking about? Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are, uh, are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done and there is no partiality masters treat your bond servants justly and fairly knowing that you also have a master in heaven continue steadfastly in prayer he didn't say a word about prayer this isn't he didn't say a word about prayer so contextually speaking paul did not address prayer in the former thought which means Paul is under the assumption that the church wanting to be the church is already praying steadfastly. Paul is under the assumption that, that a, a, a healthy church that would desire a letter from him on how to be the church, a group of people in Colossia who he knew well and established a church there before he got arrested, would be people of prayer. This is how he knew them. He knew them as people of steadfast prayer. So he's telling them to continue something that he already knew to be true of them, or at least was assuming was still true of them. 
Even though all this other stuff needed addressed, even though all this other stuff in the book of Colossians, this letter that we have, after thousands of years, there is stuff that Paul is addressing as sinful outpouring of an ungodly life. You want to be like Jesus. This is how you do it. This is what's important. These are the things you do, behavioral patterns, right? But in that, he still has this assumption that the people of God in Colossia are people of steadfast prayer. People of persistent, steadfast prayer. The church at its best was praying steadfastly when they were gathered and when they were not gathered. I think we picture it this way. We picture it that the people of God, even post-Pentecost, were just together all the time. They were in a setting like this. The apostles were all up front. The apostles stood up like popcorn and said, this is the sermon I've prepared. And then they sat down. And then this one stood up and said, this is the sermon I've prepared. And then they sat down. And at some point they broke bread and ate and washed one another's feet and they prayed. These people had lives. They had families. They had jobs. They had responsibilities. So when they were together, they were praying steadfastly. And when they weren't, they were praying steadfastly. And Paul says that the success of the furthering of the gospel has a direct line back to a praying church. Sure, the behavioral patterns are important. Sure, it is important for us to walk in wisdom toward people who don't believe the same things as us. It is important for us to make the best usage of the time, which, real quick, make the best usage of the time is a direct echo out of praying steadfastly. Let your speech always be gracious. We could just have a whole sermon on that one, couldn't we? Seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. That's all a direct outpouring of being a steadfastly praying church. Continue steadfast, resolutely in prayer. Being watchful in it. With thanksgiving, here's what he means by that. This is more of the how to pray, okay? If this is helpful, and I believe it is helpful because it's in the word. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, which means this. Your prayers should always reorient your heart around who your king is, what you've been given through him, and who you are because of him. Ultimate thanksgiving comes back to being thankful for redemptive work of Jesus. You can be thankful for the other things in your life, but none of them trump. None of them go over being redeemed by the blood of Jesus. So be watchful in your prayers with thanksgiving so that your prayers don't become self-serving, so that your prayers don't get reoriented around you and what you want, because the second that happens... You bring in a whole new pathway where you can get angry at God when he doesn't give you what you want. No, be watchful in your prayers with thanksgiving. And at the same time, pray for us. 
that God will open to us a door for the word. Pray for us. Pray that God would open up a doorway, a pathway for the word to do its work, to declare this mystery of Christ. By the way, that's why I'm in prison. Now, you don't have that kind of joy, that kind of perspective, if you're not watchful with thanksgiving in your prayers. Because there's no way you can reorient your prayer life around healthy ends and healthy wording. Do you realize there's not one time in this letter that Paul says, pray for my immediate release. Pray for my immediate exoneration. I am not guilty. I am an innocent man. Pray for justice to be served. Pray for me to be vindicated. No. He says, pray for us. And pray that God would open a door, not to a prison cell that I can walk out of. Pray that God would open a door for the mystery of Christ to be declared. Now, if you are not, I am not, reorienting our prayers around the redemptive work of Jesus, we will pray for the wrong doors to be open. Those doors will serve us. They'll serve me. I will pray for my freedom, and I will pray for my exoneration, and I will pray for my justice. Paul is way more concerned in prayer for others to experience what he has experienced we're studying in Romans, uh, Romans chapter 9. He actually says he's, he's heartbroken in Romans 9 for the people who don't know Jesus and potentially will never know Jesus. And one thing he says was that if it was possible for me to give up my own salvation, if that meant you could have it, I would do it. That's Paul's heart in prayer. So what is prayer? Prayer is us communicating with a holy God and always reorienting ourselves around the redemptive work that He did on our behalf. Center yourself on that. Make that be the first part of your and my prayers. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that I no longer have to walk in sin. Thank you that I no longer have to live in sin. I have a way out and I have a path forward because of the redemptive work of your Son. And start that way. And I have pretty good suspicion based on what Paul is instructing to the church in Colossia and by God's infinite grace, us, that that will inform our prayers around healthy expectations. What does it mean to pray? I'm glad you asked. Uh, there's going to be a tool and a resource out on the table on your way out today. It's a book. It's called... Uh, Five things to pray for your church. Megan and I got one of these a few months back given to us called Five Things to Pray for Your Children. So every morning for about 10 minutes, Megan and I sit on the couch in the midst of all the other potential chaos that's happening. And we each week has a different passage of scripture. That passage of scripture is broken down into five parts to help you pray that day for one specific thing. So the next one we opened was five things to pray for your church. What has been a remarkable blessing 
is to pray through these things, but actually at the end of it or in the midst of it, as we pray, hear ourselves praising the Lord for the things we are praying for actually happening in the body. We're not praying for them in some echo chamber where we don't believe it will actually happening. No, this stuff is happening. What a joy. So we want everybody to do it. So you, there's, there's 40 of them out there. I think there's at least one for every family. Grab one. And then I'm going to annoy you every day with an email with the exact prompt in there, prompting us all to be a praying church. What happens in a community when a church prays? Well, people understand the mystery of Christ. People also go to prison. People still die. There's still pain and loss and hurt. But in the midst of all of that, we reorient ourselves around the redemptive work of Jesus and His mystery. The mystery of Jesus is made known to the people around us. And that's really the end game here, folks. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to worship Jesus. We're trying to be more like Him. And we want the mystery of Christ to be known to our neighbors, be known to the people around us. This is going to help us do it. It's not a magic pill, but it is a really helpful tool and resource. If you're sitting there today and you're like, I don't even know where to begin to pray. Well, here you go. We want to help you with that. So we bought them. We're giving them to you. If you think to yourself, wow, I think this book's probably a $5 book. I'm going to put $5 in the offering plate. Don't. Get on goodbook.com and buy one and give it to somebody else. And let's just get more people praying. We don't need more of the money for these books. We don't need you to cover the cost of it. I believe the eternal investment will pay way more dividends than whatever it costs us out of pocket to buy you some books. And we're the church, so you paid for them already anyway. That's going to start next Monday. That's going to start next Monday. So you will have this week and next week to grab that book. So if by next week... The end of next Sunday, there are still some books on that table. You're going to hear about it. We want to be a church that prays, and this is one way we're going to do it. And this is just praying through God's Word, by the way. It gives a passage of Scripture, and it helps you reorient your prayer life around what God's Word already says. It's a win-win. Okay? So take that with you today. The other thing that we miss in prayer is that it isn't us talking to some empty vapor in the sky. Prayer is us conversing with the God of the universe who just so happens to call us his friends. I recently watched a sermon by Tim Keller, which by the way, I'm going to email it to you tomorrow. I want you to watch it. I want you to listen to it because there was a part of me that just wanted to repeat everything he said this morning in my sermon and be like, thus saith Tim Keller. Uh, I am, full disclosure, going to tell you that the next two things that I'm going to tell you come directly from that message. I don't want to ever be guilty of plagiarism. He says it way better than me. I'm going to send you the sermon tomorrow, but this part will not be new information to you because you're going to hear it today. He points the listener back to Psalm 25, verse 14. Real quick, I want to look at that verse because I want it to reorient our minds and our hearts around Jesus desiring a friendship with us and how that should inform our prayer life. Psalm 25, verse 14, it says this, 
The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. Now, I'll say, before I tell you what Keller says, the thing that blew my mind here as I studied this was that this was written by David before Jesus came as the Messiah. So we can look at this and say, well, of course he's our friend. Jesus actually says that in John 15. We're going to look at that here in a minute. But this is before all that. A friend, a friendship with God. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. Keller highlights the word friendship here and reminds the listener that it is the Hebrew word sod, S-O-D, but pronounced sod. And that word means it speaks to intimacy and trusted counsel. It's the concept of our go-to. Who's that friend that you tend to go to, like your go-to? So prayer is us treating the God of the universe like he's our go-to. Prayer is, is us at the same time knowing and living as though he's our friend, the creator of the universe. I'm going to give you one more sports analogy today. I'm sorry, that's like three. But at least they're all Philly sports analogies. Imagine if your best friend told you this afternoon that he just bought the Eagles. He owns the team. Your best friend owns the Eagles. Jason is inside. He's giddy right now, like thinking about that. I want, to think, I want you to think about the privileges that will be afforded to you because your best friend owns the Eagles. Now, you'd get some kind of special badge. He'd probably put you on staff in some, some titled job that you don't really do anything. You just make a lot of money just being down at the stadium all the time. Yeah, I'm uh, the director of... Uh, this thing that, uh, anyway, right? Think about it. I mean, you get to go wherever you want in the stadium. You fly on the jet. You have personal access to the whole bit, right? Think of all the privileges afforded to you because your best friend owns the Eagles. Your picture shows up in press conference photos because you're just like kind of hanging out all the time. You go wherever you want during a game. You eat whatever you want. If there's a concert at the stadium, you find a way to get there. It comes up in almost all of your conversations. Oh, yeah, dude, he's my best friend. I go to all the Eagles stuff, all of it. Oh, yeah, I mean, they'll turn around next year. He's my best friend. They're going to draft this guy this year. It'll get better, right? He's my best friend. You know how many people would get tired of hearing you talking about are your friends with the owners of the Eagles? Why? Because you talk about it all the time. Think of the privileges afforded to you in that scenario. In John 15, it quotes Jesus when he looks at his disciples and he says these words, I have called you friends. Now, I want us to take us back to something here. Jesus, in a boat, sound asleep. I'm talking like newborn, newborn in the house, dad sleep. Newborn in the house, dad sleep is deep sleep. Because you don't hear squat. Right, Sarah? Yeah. 
<laughs> the tire treads are there, Nick. I, I'm not even apologizing for it. <laughs> Newborn dad sleep is deep sleep. I mean, they, you didn't hear any of that last night? I would make Megan so mad because I'd say things like, man, the kids slept great last night. <laughs> and she'd be like, what world do you live in? That's how Jesus is sleeping in this boat at this moment. Sound asleep. I mean, and these men that are with him, a lot of them are fishermen. They spent their whole life in the water. They were well acquainted with storms. But this one, they're fearing for their lives. This storm is unlike anything they've ever experienced in their entire life. And the boat is rocking, and it looks like the ship is going to bust into pieces at any minute, and they're all going to die. And they look to the front of the boat, and Jesus is out cold, sound asleep. Are you kidding me? And they wake him up in a panic. And he doesn't even address it. He's, he's not like groggily like, what's going on? What are you guys at? He just gets up, looks out at the scenario around him and just says, peace, be still. And instantly, instantly, the sun comes out, the water gets calm. And the disciples ask this question. Who is this guy? that even the wind and the waves obey the sound of his voice. Now lean in close, because this is important. Sally Lloyd-Jones tells us that the winds and the waves obeyed his voice because they knew his voice. They were created because of his voice. That same person, just a few short moments later, sitting at a table, looks at these same exact guys who still didn't have a complete picture of who he was. He looks them all in the eye and he says, you are my friends. Fast forward a few thousand years, folks, and you're sitting in a church in Warrington, Pennsylvania, or you're watching this online somewhere, and the God of the universe, that same Jesus, is looking you in the eye. And saying the exact same thing. You are my friends. If you are in Christ, that is how you are viewed. You're not a slave. You're not a servant. No. You are a friend. You get all the rights and benefits and privileges of being best friends with the one who spoke the planet into existence. So the follow-up question has to be, why don't you ever talk to him? God has always desired closeness with us. We see this. Do you realize when Jesus says this in John 15, it's actually an echo back to Genesis 1 and 2 when it says that God would walk in the cool of the evening with Adam. God has always desired closeness to us. This is not a new concept. He has a kinship and a friendship with him. God has always desired that. You see, that's why sin breaks the heart of God because in a perfect existence, God desired to go for a walk with you. In a perfect existence, that's what God desired, was a close-knit, let's-go-for-a-walk relationship. Let me hear about your day. What animals did you name today, Adam? Oh, hippopotamus, that's interesting. How'd you come up with that? I don't know, it just kind of came to me. Sin broke that relationship, and God did all the work to get it back. 
through the beautiful life of His risen Son, the incarnation of Jesus. God has always desired a closeness with you, church. And, and He calls you His friend. So why don't you talk to Him? Because you're not a good prayer. You go for a walk with a friend. Do you say, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I just, I can't do that because I'm not a good talker. That's what I say. I don't like to talk. You're allowed to chuckle at that. <laughs> so here's the takeaways. I could keep going, but I'm not going to. Here's the takeaways. As, I, as I've been marinating in this, here's the takeaways. Number one. Pray. That's the first takeaway. Pray. It doesn't need to be an eloquent speech. It doesn't need to say the name of Jesus a thousand times in it. You talk to anybody else like you talk to Jesus in public? Anyone? I don't have a conversation with Megan. Be like, hey, Megan, today, Megan, could we, Megan, go for a walk later, Megan? Because after the game, Megan, I'd like to, Megan, go outside, Megan, and enjoy the Megan weather. Megan, Megan, Megan. Right? Why do we pray like that? He knows who you're talking to. You don't need to remind him. He knows what his name is. And you don't need to put on a show when you pray. Actually, Jesus condemns that in Matthew 6. When he instructs people on how to pray, he says, Do not go out in public and pray your long, eloquent prayers like the Pharisees do. No. Actually, you should just pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's so important that across religious traditions everywhere, I could probably get everyone in this room to quote it. How Jesus instructed to pray, no matter what upbringing you had, you probably know how to quote the Lord's Prayer. So Jesus is saying, don't make it a show. It's not about proving to people around you how, how, how much you know the Bible. It's not about that. No, it is just a conversation between you and a God who loves you. It is a conversation between you and your friend, Jesus. Here's a second takeaway. Be persistent. Be persistent. Strong relationships are marked by good communication. Being a pastor, I've had the joy, the privilege to sit with people in a counseling session in different areas and arenas of where relationships at. Sometimes those relationships are in a traumatic tipping point and sometimes in a beautiful moment and anything in between. Sometimes it's a couple preparing to be married and asking questions about as someone who has been married longer than we have because we haven't done it yet, what are some things we should be putting our attention on and counseling at the other ends of marriages and, and other areas of life where people are in just the crisis mode. And my awesome responsibility and privilege in that moment is to just reorient the conversation around Jesus. But I would say that when a marriage is at a crisis point, somewhere along the line, communication stopped. It broke down or it just downright got terrible. You don't tell me that. I never knew that. How can you tell that here in this room with our pastor, but you didn't say it to me a month ago? Communication breaks down. And when communication is not good communication, the relationship suffers. 
Jesus is an immovable entity. He's not going anywhere. But our lack of communication with Jesus distances us from our Father. We choose that through bad communication with a very good God. Be persistent. And the third takeaway, be in the Word. If you're not in the Word, you're having a one-sided, selfish, self-centered conversation with your king. And I can't be more aggressive about that. Now, that, when you hear that frustration come out in my tone, I want to let you know wholeheartedly, full confession, if I sound frustrated with that point, if I sound aggressive with that point, it's because I am frustrated with myself. I am frustrated with me on that one, not you. How many wasted moments I have had having selfish, self-centered, one-way relationship with God and then having the audacity to shake my fist at Him as though He's some genie in a bottle that has to give me everything I want or I just won't pray anymore. I'm not going to church anymore. I'm not talking to you anymore. You're not my friend anymore. Like I'm two years old in preschool and someone just took my toy. Jesus says often, come to me like little children, but that's not what he means. He says, come to me like little children. Don't think so highly of yourself. Be in the word, church. That's how Jesus is speaking back to you. That's a two-way conversation. You want good communication in your relationship with God and not read your Bible. You don't want good communication in your relationship with God. You want to feel a passion and a zeal and a presence of the Lord? I just don't feel God's presence anymore. My first question is always, when's the last time you met with Him in the Word? Start somewhere. I want you to take just a few seconds right now, whether it's awkward or not. Look around the room. Go ahead. Make eye contact. Make it weird. Not that weird, Andrew. You realize you're in a room full of resources? You feel lonely, and you're choosing to be lonely. I can tell you, and it might not sound very compassionate, but that's a choice you're making, and it's the wrong one. We spent our whole announcement time telling you about opportunities to not be lonely. And every one of them with the exception of eating barbecued meat, gets you into the Word. Every one of them. If you are lonely, you are choosing to be lonely. If you feel dried up, you are choosing to be dried up. At any minute, right now, you can pray. No matter how full your calendar is, no matter how crazy your life is, you can pray. You can pray while you drive. You don't have to listen to the radio. You, you don't have to watch the game today. You can pray. You can meet in the Word. A two-way conversation with the Lord. So pray. Be persistent and be in the Word. 
what, what a friend we have in Jesus. Precious Jesus, Lord and friend, I give you everything. Shelter, shepherd, savior, king. I give everything to you. Father, may you bolster in us a confidence in knowing that we have a friendship, a kinship with the creator of the universe. You call us friend. We call you friend. Prayer is this awesome gift from a holy God. Lord, may we not squander it. God, maybe some of our prayers have to start with, God, I don't know where to start. I don't know how to do this. And you'll meet us there. You'll tenderly look at us and say, I know. It's okay. Let's just start here. God, make yourself known to your people. May we be people that treasure and hold in high regard the friendship that you offer us. What a friend we have in Jesus.